let's pray together again. Father, thank you for the gift of this morning. Thank you for time together in worship as a church family that we could start off here this first Sunday of the year together and with you. And God, we turn to your word now and we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through the text of scripture. And so God, would you speak to us this morning as we read your word and study it together? Would you convict us where necessary? Would you comfort us where necessary? Lord, help us hear from you in these moments. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, hey, good morning. Once again, welcome to FBC. Happy New Year. We are glad that you are here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors and just want to welcome you and invite you now to open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 15. Verse 25, okay, that's where we're going to be this morning, Luke 15, starting in verse 25. Uh, In just a few weeks, we're going to be back in the Gospel of John. We started uh, studying the Gospel of John back in February of 2021, so for a while now, we've just been walking through it little by little. Uh, The majority of the time here at FBC, we're just going to do that. We're going to take a book of the Bible and walk through it. Uh, little by little, we believe that the Bible is God's word, and so we want to let the text um, of Scripture set the agenda for what we talk about. And so that's uh, normally what you're going to see here. But for a few weeks, we're going to be looking at a new series called Gospel-Shaped Relationships. So for just a few weeks here, before we get back into the Gospel of John, the second half of John, we're going to talk about the uh, timeless and ever-relevant topic of relationships. Because we are inescapably relational beings. Right? We're made in the image of God, who is himself relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are often uh, at the mercy of our relationships, you could say. Our flourishing is tied to the health and substance of our relationships. You could do a quick Google search and pull up study after study, research project after research project that shows exactly that. We need community. We need one another. We do not thrive when we are in isolation. And so we're going to talk about relationships because let's be honest, relationships are not easy. Right? We are not strangers to relational tension and dysfunction. If you made it through the last year or two uh, without relational issues, you are lying. And I don't believe you. Right? We all know what this is like. Often, actually, think about it. Our greatest sources of frustration and our deepest wounds come from relationships. Again, our greatest sources of frustration and our deepest wounds, right? If you were to think now and think about the most painful experiences of your life, they probably have to do with relationships. Relationships gone wrong, situations with other people. But conversely, relationships also, in the context of relationships, we can experience the most powerful healing and transformation. And so for a few weeks, we're going to talk about gospel-shaped relationships. In other words, we don't want to just talk about relationships in general, but how does the good news of Jesus 
the message of the gospel influence and shape and form and transform how we interact with other people. See, sometimes we think about the gospel, the message of Jesus, as this uh, story that gets us to heaven and to eternal life, but then we think that it has little impact on our present earthly life and little impact on how we relate with other people. And yet, that's not the case at all. Because as as we read the New Testament, we just see exploding off the pages of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, we find hope for this whole new way of being human and relating to other people. This whole new way of navigating relationships. And so it's my hope that in these few weeks together, we will learn or maybe just be reminded of some things we've already known to be true about how Jesus truly changes every interaction we have. We're going to talk about this from the angle of how we interact with ourselves and think about ourselves, how we interact within our family, within our church, with uh, other people, with those who are difficult to love. And uh, We all can relate with that. But we're going to start this week, unsurprisingly, by talking about our relationship with God because it's so foundational for how we view every other relationship in our life. Author Pete Scazzaro recently diagnosed, and accurately diagnosed, I would say, one of the biggest errors that we make in regards to our relationship with God. And he says that in the church, often we focus and emphasize doing for God above being with God. Again, we emphasize doing for God above or before being with God. We instead focus on spiritual activity and action and a full calendar and busyness in the name of God for, we mistake that for spiritual maturity. We say that's what a true Christian looks like. So we're going to dig into this a little bit. And one of the best examples of this in Scripture we find in Luke chapter 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, we see a man who is busy working for his father, doing all the right things, obedient, checking the boxes, and yet his heart, we see, is quite far from his father. We spent a few weeks, uh, a few summers ago, walking through this parable in full. And so we're going to revisit part of it here this morning because it teaches us so much about our relationship with God, primarily by way of pointing out how we often get it wrong. If you're not familiar with the story, it begins in Luke chapter 15. It starts out with a son who wants nothing to do with his father. So he asks for his inheritance. He wants his father's money. And then this son leaves home, squanders all of the family wealth in reckless and wild living, hits rock bottom, starts doing all sorts of crazy things. He's listening to Christmas music in March. He's wearing socks and sandals. His life is a mess. And he realizes, I need to change something. And so, he heads home to his father. 
And he doesn't know how his father is going to receive him. He assumes he's going to have to earn his way back to the family. But what we see is the father embrace him with open arms. He runs to him, sees him from a distance, draws near, kisses him, embraces him, welcomes him home, and throws a party for him. And it's a powerful image, maybe one of the most beloved of all parables, because it shows us how God welcomes sinners home. And so many of us can relate to this wayward younger brother sinning in obvious ways who comes home to the loving embrace of a father. But there's a second brother in the story who we're going to focus on this morning. An older brother, the firstborn, who was quite different from this first younger brother. See, the older brother stayed home. He worked hard. He was obedient. He was responsible. He kept the rules. And the parable is going to show us that there are some of us, like the younger brother, who run away from God, who sin in clear and obvious ways, live immoral lives. And then there are some of us, like the older brother, who stay home, have a pretty clean moral record from the outside. We go to church. We read our Bibles. And see, what we'll do with this story is we'll assume that it's the older brother who's the spiritual one, the one who's doing it right. But Jesus surprises us by showing us that actually the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. but he doesn't realize it. So let's take a look at the text. We'll pick up the story after the younger brother has returned home. And we'll see the response of the older brother. Meanwhile, verse 25 says, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Remember, this is the party the father's throwing for the younger son because he's home. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, and so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. As the story goes on, again, we realize that the older brother is lost, too. He wandered away from his father all while staying home. See, on the outside, things looked good. He was doing plenty for his father, working hard, but in his heart, he grew disillusioned. And so Jesus is trying to show us here that today there are two ways to be lost. You could run away from God and live a clearly immoral life. Or you could live a dutiful religious life without having a relationship with your father. And this way is much more dangerous because the older brother didn't know he was lost. Because his lostness was buried. 
beneath layers of obedience, of moral standing, church attendance even. And it's difficult because there's lots of older brothers in churches. I'm a recovering older brother myself. And so if you can relate to any of this as we go, just know that I can relate to it as well. So let's look at the older brother and think about, well, how do we know he's so lost? Where did he go wrong? First notice this, the older brother has his heart set, again, on work for his father rather than life with his father. He's so focused on his work for the father. Look again at verse 29, the brother's answer. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You hear that? All these years I've been slaving for you. I've been working hard. I've been obedient. But you see, it's, it's joyless. He doesn't seem convinced that he's living the good life, enjoying relationship with his father. No, he's doing what he should do, what he ought to do, what the rules tell you to do. But in his heart, he's thinking, you know what, I'm really missing out on the fun that other people get to have. It's doing rather than being. Author Henry Nouwen, the the Dutch priest, captures this dynamic well, how older brothers grow bitter looking at their lives and considering their younger brothers. He says this of himself. He said, it's strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. It's the emotion that arises when I see my friends having a good time, doing all sorts of things that I condemn. I called their behavior reprehensible or even immoral, but at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. The obedient and dutiful life of which I am proud and for which I am praised feels sometimes like a burden that was laid on my shoulders and continues to oppress me. See, for an older brother, the Christian life is duty without delight. Obedience without joy. Work without relationship. Doing what you ought to do, but really being suspicious that you're missing out, being cheated out of the good life. When you're in that place spiritually, you probably have a a dry prayer life and experience little intimacy with God. And you're suspicious of those around you who aren't as exhausted and serious and grim as you are. They must not be as spiritual as you, because they're not taking this whole Jesus thing serious enough. And when enough people like that get together, it creates a church culture that's toxic and really heavy on work and activity for God and light on grace and rest and joy. 
Notice next, the older brother, he focuses on what he's doing for his father, not being with his father. And if you do that long enough, you'll start to feel entitled. You see his response in verse 29 again. He answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And here's the entitlement. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Right? Not only has my life with you been work without reward, working hard, I haven't received anything for it. And my younger brother, who, by the way, is a big-time sinner, right? Squander the family wealth with prostitutes, so on. You know the story. He comes home and he gets the fattened calf in a party when I don't even get a small goat to celebrate with my friends. Again, the older brother is experiencing here what medical professionals call where's my goat syndrome. Where's my goat? Our family goes to church regularly. We even tithe. I tell the truth. I have integrity at my job. I listen to Caleb on the radio. Where's my goat? Life seems to be a little bumpy right now, Father. But I serve you. I mean, I volunteer in the church. I show up early. I stay late. I pray for other people. I serve other people. Where's my goat? Where's my health? Where's my protection? Why is there this this relational strain in my family or this, this wound in my heart from this relationship that didn't go the way I wanted it to? Why are, why are we struggling financially? Or why has our health gone downhill? Where's my raise? Where is my recognition? My comfortable life? Where's my goat? Right, so for older brothers, when things are hard, they go wrong, we start to blame God because he's not holding up his end of the bargain. Right, there's a simple formula for our agreement here, Father. I obey and do good, and you reward me. That's how it works, right? But my, my younger brother, he's disobeyed, and yet he's being rewarded. So the math isn't adding up here. Father, you're not keeping up your end of the deal. And so you see that the older brother doesn't obey and serve his father because he loves his father. But deep down, there's a desire for control. He wants to control his father. Oh, I'll play the game. I'll jump through the hoops. I'll keep the rules because then you'll owe me. You'll be in my debt. I serve you. I earn it. You bless me. That's how it works. Now, if you're an experienced older brother, a veteran older brother, we could say, you're much too coy and sly to let something like this slip out of your mouth. You know better than to say that out loud or express that to people. No, you're going to hold on to that in the quietness of your heart. There will be this, this undercurrent of anger, of resentment, of bitterness, because you will genuinely believe that you are owed more than God has given you. And let me just say, social media in modern, our modern age hasn't helped this. Because then at our, at our fingertips is just uh, 
overwhelming amounts of content and images uh, of everybody else's joyful, happy, perfect life. Pictures of their experiences and their opportunities and how their family's happier than yours and so on. But when we react this way with entitlement, it reveals that we really want God's blessings more than we want God himself. We want the goat or the party. And further, it shows us that we're not really convinced we need a savior. Because again, we can keep the rules and jump through the hoops, thank you very much. And so Jesus sure is a nice moral example and told some great stories and we'll follow his lead, but we're not sure we need a rescue. So because the older brother focuses on work for his father rather than being with his father, he's entitled and you notice he has this visible disdain for younger brothers. Look again at verse 29 and 30. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But, here's the bitterness, but when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. There's disdain for younger brothers and for grace shown to them. Verse 30, this son of yours, not my brother, our family member who was lost and is now home. No, your son. And he makes sure to point out his shame. He squandered the family wealth with prostitutes. He's been immoral. It's shameful. And you threw a party for him. See, comparison is the name of the game for older brothers because they're radically insecure and their sense of identity and security has to be bolstered by the failures of others. And so his younger brother has sinned quite visibly. He has the moral high ground. He would never do such a thing. He has his theology right and his morality right and his behavior, right? And he's cleaned up and polished, and so he has disdain for those who don't. Older brothers often lack empathy, can be cold, judgmental, feel superior, act superior, look down on other people, say, I've figured it out. Why can't you? They're slow to extend compassion and patience and grace. They don't see themselves in the same boat as those other types of sinners, especially those who sin differently than they do. This quote from Tim Keller summarizes things well. Elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. They hold grudges long and bitterly, look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles, experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery. They have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. Yeah, it's a pretty ugly picture, right? And just a side note, if uh, 
that quote was from The Prodigal God by Pastor Tim Keller, a book. We have free copies of it on the wall as you're leaving. We'd love to gift that to you for anyone who wants it to explore this parable more fully. But we're talking about this because the older brother perfectly captures the approach of someone who's trying to do things for God without a relationship with God. And so we have to ask, well, what's, what's the alternative? There has to be an alternative, right? You can't just end here, you know, Happy New Year, all right. What's the alternative? Because a lot of people, seriously, will look at this and all the things kind of we've just described, and that's what they'll think Christianity is about. That's what they'll think, like, religious people are about. It's like, hey, you know, act right. Jump through the hoops. Stay home, work hard, be obedient, be that older brother. They'll think that's the, that's the good news. That's the message we have to share with the world. But again, that's not the gospel. So we have to see in this text, there's hope of something different. Look at verse 31 in the father's response. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Look at him, my, my son, he says. So rather than scolding this older brother or beating him or kicking him out of the family or disowning him, which he could have done for this public reproach, it's completely out of line for a son to talk to his father this way in the ancient world. His father had grounds to do all kinds of things in response. But instead, the father is merciful and gracious, just like he was with his younger son. He's gracious and kind with the older brother. And he says, my son, again, not listen here, punk, you ungrateful firstborn. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. He doesn't go there. Instead, what does he say? Says, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. What good thing have I withheld from you? What good thing do you lack? And friends, I confess I come back to these words, this verse, quite often when I sense jealousy in my heart or bitterness in my heart or that kind of older brother spirit within me kind of welling up. I go back to these words, my son. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. And it brings us right back to, to the heart of the gospel, relationship with God. You are always with me. We see here the love of a father for his sons. Isn't that what fathers desire? To be with their kids, with their grandkids? Pastor John Piper put it this way. We shared this quote recently. He said this, The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. In other words, the, the gospel is not primarily an issue of geography. It's not primarily solving a geographical problem. It's solving a relational problem. That through our sin, we've separated ourselves from God. And so the answer is not, you know, just some impersonal ticket to eternity. The answer is to get back into a relationship with the one true God, the giver of life. 
to get back into a relationship with the God who made us and loves us, be reconciled to him. And so we see in this parable that that one son physically left home, but both sons in their hearts were quite far from home. And so the question then is, how do we come home? We need to be reconciled to our father. How do we get home? 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. It's through Jesus that we can come home. It says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So there it is, friends. Our sins separated us from God. The Bible tells us we were dead in our sin, worthy of judgment and hell and separation from God forever. And yet God, in his mercy and in his grace, reconciled us to himself through Christ. So Jesus came, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved in our place, and rose again. So that whoever puts their faith in Christ is made alive in him, united to him, forgiven of their sins. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's not something that we earn. God does for us what we we could not have done ourselves. And so coming home is costly. Make no mistake. Jesus paid a high price. It cost him his life, his death on the cross. But do you see how that changes the nature of our relationship with God? How the gospel shapes the foundation of our relationship with God. It's not about us earning it, working for it, being good enough to achieve God's love as if we ever could. But it's about what Christ has done on our behalf. Salvation is a gift. And so if we receive it as a gift, then we're not going to play this uh, constant game on the scales where we try and add up our good works and if other people fail, then it's going to make us look even better. So we just have to be kind of better than the rest and work a little harder and, you know, check the boxes. And that's what's going to earn us salvation or even rewards and blessings, right? You can get us off that whole hamster wheel. That's not what it's about. It's about receiving through faith the work of Christ. And then at the end of the parable, you see it ends with this feast, with this celebration, right? The father celebrating that his younger son is home and then inviting the older son into that joy, into that celebration all the same, to be with their father and enjoy him. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't know, pastor. This is, are you just like making this up, right? Is this kind of some like fringe teaching of the Bible and, and you're just kind of running with this and we're not really sure you're being serious enough here about the gospel and about salvation and about sin and so on. Is that, is that what's going on here? I would argue that we see this theme about being with God before doing for God throughout the scriptures. Think with me of a few other examples. Think of uh, the famous passage in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is with Mary and Martha. You remember it? Jesus is in 
the home, and uh, Martha is busy working for Jesus and the disciples, you know, being a homemaker, making sure things are right. And, you know, it was a job to take care of Jesus and the disciples. There was a lot of, you know, things happening with that. And so she's working hard. But what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha gets all worked up because Mary, her sister, isn't helping her. And so she goes to Jesus. Says, Jesus, look at Mary. She's not doing anything. I look at what I'm doing. I'm working hard. Can you tell her to stop being so lazy and come and work hard so we can make things, you know, smooth around here? And Jesus says, no. Yeah, she has chosen the thing that is best. She says, Martha, you're worried about many things. But Mary has chosen what is best. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Not that work for Jesus is bad but that being with Jesus comes first. You can look at Mark chapter 3 when Jesus calls his disciples. It says that he calls them uh, to be with him and to send them out. He calls them to be with him. It's relational language. He spends a lot of time with these disciples. We can think about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The passage that we just read talks about the ministry of reconciliation, God reconciling the world to himself through Christ. That's relational language, right? Reconciliation, being brought back into right relationship. That's the heart of the gospel. Or we can think about that haunting passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says on that last day, on that day of judgment, many are going to come to me and they're going to be on the outside of the kingdom of God. But they're going to protest. What are they going to say? They're going to say, hey, wait a second. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do this and that in your name? Didn't we work hard for you? I mean, we were busy. Our calendar was full. We even volunteered at church for you. And on that day, he'll say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. So yeah, you were busy doing plenty of stuff, but that's not the heart of the message. It's relationship with God. Do you know him? And again, don't get me wrong. Yes, there's, there's plenty of work to do to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, to share the gospel, to see the lost come to know Jesus, to do justice and mercy and be peacemakers. There's, there's plenty of work to do. But we can't get the cart ahead of the horse. We have to start by being with God before working for God. And so it's my hope that we can start this year off with this emphasis as a church family. Now, just a few quick practical steps uh, for how we can do that. The first thing we can do is, one, remember the gospel. We have to remember the gospel and come back to this message over and over again. That's why we come to church week after week. That's why we're engaging in the scriptures daily. We need to remind our kids and our spouses and our families of the gospel. Like what is the foundation of our relationship with God? It's the work of Christ on our behalf because we so often slip into works righteousness. It's so easy for us. It's like our default setting. Look at me and look at what I've done. 
in comparison to other people. God, aren't I great? Shouldn't you accept me? So we have to remember the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. The second thing we need to do, I think, is we need to honestly evaluate where we're at. We need to take a long look at our hearts. And so, Lord, am I emphasizing more working for you or being with you? Do I take a lot of pride in my busyness and my serving and my accomplishments? Because I think that that earns your favor. We need to take a look at our hearts and ask questions like, you know, why am I always in a hurry? Why am I being so impatient lately? What's what's beneath that? What's what's all this anxiety about? What's going on in my heart? Why did I get so defensive in that conversation? Why do I so often avoid conflict? We need to stop and honestly evaluate our hearts and say, Lord, what's going on in my heart right now? Am I resting in you or not? So we need to remember the gospel. We need to honestly evaluate our hearts before the Lord. Third, we need to slow down. Because we can be so busy and fill up the calendar and life can be so fast-paced that we never really stop, one, to rest, or two, to hear God's voice and to sense how he's leading us and prompting us. And so do you have time in your day where you're quiet before the Lord? Do you practice Sabbath where once a week you say, you know what, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to fire up the email. I'm not going to run errands. I'm just going to stop and rest and enjoy God and my family and good food and strong coffee. You know, do you rest? Because sometimes if we don't slow down, it's, this is all just kind of a non-starter, you know. We'll never slow down or stop or reflect long enough to make any meaningful changes in our life to connect with God because we'll just be so busy and distracted. So find ways to slow down. And then the last thing I'll say is we need to see following Jesus as a lifestyle, not just an event. Not just like a Sunday morning box to check. You know, the event happened, I went to worship. All right. But following Jesus as a lifestyle but he calls us to follow him not just for an hour on Sunday morning, but now he's present with us by the power of his spirit and goes with us now out wherever we go. And so, Lord, would you, would you guide me, speak to me in every interaction, in everything that this day holds? Would help me remain open to your voice, your leading, your prompting. Follow Jesus as a lifestyle, not an event. So, friends, one of the ways that we... Uh, practice, and one of the ways we worship, I should say, is by taking communion together as a church family. One of the ways that we remember the gospel, right, the foundation of our faith that that we can be with God because of Jesus, reconciled to him because of Jesus. Well, Jesus told us to remember him by, as often as we're together, taking these elements, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus on the cross, and the blood representing the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, the price that he paid to reconcile us to God. It also reminds us again of our, uh, our need, 
that we come to the table with empty hands. We come to receive what Christ has done for us. And so, uh, as long as there's been followers of Jesus, the church has been recognizing this act, communion, taking the elements together in worship. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, everyone who's put their faith in Jesus, we invite you to participate. Meaning, if even if you're from out of town, this isn't your church home, you're just visiting. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. If that's not you, or you're like, I'm not, that's not, I'm not walking with Jesus, I'm not following him, then you can just leave the elements on your chair. That's okay. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come as your people to worship you. And we remember you, your broken body, your shed blood, the price that you paid to reconcile us, to redeem us, to save us from sin and death and judgment and hell. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon our works-based righteousness, but it's on your righteousness, Jesus, given to us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.